previously in dark places. They're like a cult now, aren't they? You see them, the young girls that are orange with the dark hair and everything. They all want to be, you know. I don't know, Opalupas. Yes. Welcome to In Dark Places, the King of Beers. Oh my goodness, I am messy. That was a fun one. Yeah, who is it? This is your In Dark News news correspondent, Mr. Haunted. Hey, Jimmy. While listening to last week's program with Ann Massey, and if you didn't listen to that episode, please go back and listen to that. We were talking about weird things that uh, scare us or creep us out. And I think we mentioned the uh, Munchkins from the Wizard of Oz and uh, Oompa Loompas. So I just wanted to share with you um, a little bit of the song and something else. Hold on. Let the joyous news be spread, the wicked witch at last Now, kids, listen to this. Apparently, the munchkins hated their leader so much, the entire population apparently made a choreographed and orchestrated musical number for when she finally died. That's some serious dedication. Way to go, little munchkins. Back to In Dark Places. Yeah, thanks again, and Messy. That was cool. We're going to do that again sometime. My dad has had lymphoma since back around March, and we thought they had it under control, but turns out they didn't, and it spread to his spine and brain, and he's not doing so good, so prayers appreciated. But he's in the hospital right now in Lexington, Kentucky. And I went to go see him a few days ago. And Lexington is a much bigger city than what I live in. Probably doesn't really seem like a very big city to most people, but it's a pretty big city for us. Little small town folk. So when I go out there, I kind of like to hit up some food joints that we don't have around this neck of the woods. And one such place is a Popeye's chicken. We don't have those here. So on this particular day I went to the Popeye's chicken house and I was going to buy me some chicken. And that's where the zaniness ensues. I'll just back up a little bit and say that for years now people have been saying that I look like other people. Like, I have a doppelganger that has been into question before on the show, I think. Uh, his name is James, and people call me James when they see me, and I don't know who James is. But, this goes, like, beyond doppelgangers, though. I'm supposedly 
and look-alike to a lot of celebrities. I think the first time I heard this was probably back around 2000. I was told that I look like Lars Ulrich from Metallica. Yeah, pretty cool, I guess. I don't see it. And I've been told that I look like Nicolas Cage, which is, you know, pretty cool too. My favorite actor and all. I've been told that I look like Tom Petty, which I don't really see that at all. Nope. And I've also been told that I look like Dave Grohl from Nirvana and Foo Fighters. And now that you're up to date on all that, let's go back to Popeye's Chicken. I went inside on this particular day because I had to use the bathroom. So I figured I would just order my food while I was in there. And I was standing in line and there was this young girl, looked like she's like 15 or 16, in front of me with her mom. And the girl just kept turning around and staring at me. I was like pretending like I didn't notice that she was staring. I was looking at the menu trying to figure out what I wanted to get and everything. And this girl was just dead set staring at me. She kept turning around and just looking right at me, staring a hole right into my very soul. And her mom kind of looked at her like, what are you doing? And the girl whispered and said, it's Dave Grohl. And her mom said, don't stare. And like, can I nudge her on the shoulder? And then the mom turned around and she started like giggling like a little schoolgirl and jumping around. Oh my God, it's Dave Grohl. And then like, they had like little whispering conversations back and forth to each other. Talking about how Dave Grohl was behind them in line at Popeye's Chicken. And the whole time I was just staring at the menu, trying to make up my mind what I wanted to buy. And the young girl just kept staring. And then, like, the mom would turn around and look from time to time. And they were just super excited to have Dave Grohl in line behind them. And I was trying to kind of decide what I should do in that kind of situation. Should I wave at them or do something say hi? But I just kept staring at the menu because I didn't really know what to say. And I was, like, about to crack up because it was hilarious, you know. Because I'm not Dave Grohl. And then finally, like, after I stood there for like five minutes, the woman working there at Popeye's Chicken came around and said, uh, sorry you guys are having to wait so long. Uh, we got some frozen chicken we got to go out in storage and get, and it's probably going to be like 20 minutes before we have any chicken for you to eat. And with that, my heart was crushed, and I wasn't going to get my Popeye's Chicken because I didn't want to stand there waiting all that time. So I just quietly walked away and went back out to my vehicle. And I left the mom and the daughter a good story to tell all their friends about the time they saw Dave Grohl at Popeye's Chicken in Lexington, Kentucky. This is the mysterious case of the bleeding walls. A TikTok user by the name of Lexi Ray recently went viral after posting a video of what appeared to be blood seeping from her bathroom wall. There have been numerous recorded instances of walls and statues bleeding, usually as a result of people claiming divine intervention, supernatural activity, home hauntings, and other similar phenomena. 
Recently, TikTok user Lexi Ray posted footage of a red fluid leaking from her bathroom wall, which caught the attention of many people. She stated she had been living there for 20 years and had never witnessed anything like it. The blood had emerged for the first time the previous night, and it was dripping down from behind the bathroom cabinet. But when she opened the unit, she proved that it came from a crack in the cabinet rather than anything inside. The wall is definitely bleeding, she said. This is straight out of a horror movie. The clip, which can be viewed below, has since racked up over 5 million views. This happened to me. There's little adhesive bits at the bottom of the cabinet, and they're melting, someone suggested. I've seen this before, actually. All you have to do is throw away the whole house. Give it a couple years in a push-up bra, and it will blossom into a beautiful full-length mirror, one user wrote. And one person wrote, uh, you have a leak behind the medicine cabinet. Maybe that's rusty water. Somebody wrote, this happened to us. The previous owners were heavy smokers. The new landlord painted, but tar would seep through. So, as of press time, the uh, mystery continues. The case of the... Uh, the case of the bleeding walls. Back to In Dark Places. This is a story out of Florida, and it also continues our weird restaurant-themed uh, stories that we've had. Florida man throws burger at his girlfriend, injuring her, by Brian Nimitz, New York Daily News. A 41-year-old Florida man is accused of hurling a cheeseburger at his girlfriend, which allegedly led to the woman stumbling over a curb and hitting the ground. A dispute between James Hunt and his unidentified girlfriend at a Clearwater, Florida Burger King led to the 53-year-old alleged victim trying to leave the eatery, at which time, according to the smoking gun, the suspect threw a burger at the 53-year-old victim, striking her in the back of the head. This accident caused the victim to fall over a curb onto the ground, the report said, citing a complaint taken by police late Saturday afternoon. <laughs> the report has its own voice. <laughs> the police said they discovered blood and cheese on the woman's shirt. There was also blood on her shorts and cheese in her hair. Not her hair. Cops said. The argument reportedly revolved around the victims not wanting to eat her meal. Police said there were abrasions on her chin and lip, apparently from when she hit the pavement. Hunt reportedly admitted to tossing the burger at his girlfriend, but did not believe he had done so with enough force to make her fall. A Burger King employee reported that Hunt struck the woman while she was on the ground which he also denies. The suspect has two prior domestic battery convictions in another state. The smoking gun reports he is said to have been charged with felony domestic battery in this case and has been ordered not to have contact with the victim.
And here is your Nicolas Cage Meltdown of the Week. What letters? You know, get off the road. Take, take a right. What letters? You have the original silence Dugald letters. Did you steal those too? We have scans of the originals. Quiet, please. How'd you get scans? Well, I know the person who has the originals. Now shush. Why do you need them? She really can't shut her mouth, can she? I'll tell you what, look. I will let you hold on to this if you'll promise to shut up. Please. Thank you. Katsooks! What do you think I'm going to talk about now? Some of you guessed it. Dogman. I came across this page on Facebook. It's called the Dogman Encrypted Eyewitness Support, Information, and Discussion page. And it was uh, started by a gentleman named Todd. And he, uh, he shared his story last week. And I'm going to share it with you guys. And it goes something like this. For anybody that doesn't know my backstory or the reason why I started my group, my first encounter was in Ozark, Arkansas. I went into the Love's Travel Stop to see if I could find parking, but the truck stop was full. I decided to park on the on-ramp. It was around 10 p.m. at night. I heard a knock on my window. My first thought it was a DOT cop or the state police. So I got dressed as fast as I could and opened the curtains. What I saw was not the cops. It looked like a giant dog with pointy ears, like my dog. One problem, though, it was eye level with me. I could see that it was not leaning against the truck, that it placed its hand against the window. Its hand looked like a gigantic human hand with long, curved claws. I didn't stick around after that. I started my rig up and left. I didn't even look back. Here's the description as best as I could give you. Seven to seven and a half feet tall, jet black fur, large head muzzle, canine fangs clearly visible, extremely bright golden yellow eyes. Later, I thought they were beautiful. Time of encounter around 10 p.m. The length, length of encounter, five minutes at most. Size of the hand, twice as big as mine. Three-inch curved claws on every digit. The time of the year was January 2020. I don't remember the exact day. The second encounter, July 2020, Charlotte, North Carolina. The 485 bypass en route to Newark, New Jersey. I got on the bypass. I'm again driving big rigs in large cities unless unless I can help it. Oh, he's against driving big rigs in large cities unless I can help it. Most of the time, bypassers are easier. I was going through some construction when I saw some red eyes shine. My first thought was a bear, so I slowed my speed down. Last thing I wanted to do is hit a critter, especially of the large variety. But when I got a better look, I realized... It was no bear. It was on its hind legs. 
and it was higher than the road sign it was standing next to. When I saw its face, I hammered down and left fast, but I still saw more than I wanted to. Here's the best description I can give you. The height was about eight feet. The fur color was white. The body was slim, but not small. It had a large head and muzzle, one arm at chest level, another resting on a road sign. The time of the day was 2 a.m., length of encounter one minute. And this guy has a third encounter. The third encounter, and worst, hopefully my last, uh, in Ozone, Arkansas, at the Ozark National Forest, November 25th, 2020. I was deer hunting. I got home early from being on the road, so I thought, why not grab the crossbow and head to the woods? So I got up early, grabbed my crossbow, backpack, and my handgun. I arrived Forest Service Road. I'd start my hike in. To where I wanted to hunt, an old orchard about five miles in, all on foot. It's really a beautiful walk in there, but four or five miles is straight woods, falling old game trails. You have to know where you're going, and um, I find it hard without my grandfather. After quite a while walking, I reached my destination. It didn't take me too long to find a good place to set up a large oak tree with a good view of the surrounding area. I sat down at the base of the tree. I remained there for at least four hours. The woods were mildly quiet, except for the occasional squirrel. Clear skies, beautiful day. After seeing no game, I decided to move a little deeper into the woods. After about five minutes of walking, I felt a tug on my pack. Thinking nothing of it, maybe got tangled up in a briar. I turned around, trying to rip loose, when I was seized by the shoulders, strong enough that I could not move. I thought somebody was in the woods messing with me. It lasted close to 30 seconds. When I, re when I was released, I turned around as fast as I could, drawing my handgun in the process. About five feet from me, it stood. I stood a strong desire to reholster my gun came over me. It was a feeling of no choice, do it or die. I did. After that, it walked closer to me. It seemed curious, as if debating if I was good eating. I guess I was not, because it smiled or sneered at me and pointed back the way I came, as if saying, leave now before I change my mind. Well, it did not take me long to get that hint. I backed up slowly when I was a good 50 feet away. It turned around and walked slowly out of there. It was well after dark before I got back to my car. The whole time I was walking, I heard it right behind me. I did not look back the few times. I slowed. I felt a shove, not rough, but more than satisfactory to get me making tracks. Last time I saw it, when I got in my car, it was standing just out inside the tree line. All I can make out was a silhouette and eye shine. Here is the best description I can give you. Under six feet tall, I had at least three inches on the thing. A dark brown coat, German shepherd-like head with pronounced muzzle. It was extraordinarily muscular. Like its favorite thing to do was lift weights, and its favorite food was protein powder. It was, on, it was on its hind legs, but due to the conditions, I had an extraordinary good look at it. When I got home, I wrote everything down that happened. It had hocks like a dog's legs, long arms that reached down to his knees. It had long claws even longer than the first one I seen. I did not see the teeth until it smiled. 
The amount of fear I was hit with was intense. The canine teeth are really big but proportionate to the size of his head. Its eyes were golden but with red eye shine. Junebug, what do you say we try to get this guy on? Anyways, um, for more dog band stories and pictures, this um, Todd has a page on Facebook, Dog Man Encrypted Eyewitness Support Information and Discussion Group. And we could all call we could also call this this week's cryptid corner. Back to in dark places. The Beast of Javudan. In a remote district of 18th century France, there stalked a marauding beast so terrible that its bloody deeds have passed into legend. Some 200 years ago, the people of Javudan, a district in southeast France, had a peaceful existence. Peasants and shepherds made a living in the pastoral quiet of tiny remote villages. Little did they expect that their area would become known far and wide as the hunting ground of the terrible scourge called the Beast of Javudan. This monstrous animal shattered the calm rhythm of their life for more than three years and more than two centuries after these events the memory of that nightmarish creature still makes people shudder. It all started in June 1764 in Macquire Forest near Lagon in eastern Javudan. A young woman was out watching her cows when suddenly she saw a hideous beast charging at her. Her dogs fled and she would have been devoured had not the cows kept the monster at bay with their horns. The cows were able to repel a second charge and the lucky young woman got away with a few scratches, torn clothes, and a bag case of nerves. The horrified villagers heard a frightening description of the beast from the shaken victim. It was about the size of a cow with a very wide chest, a huge head and neck, short straight ears, and a nose like a greyhound. Two large fangs protruded from each side of its black mouth. Its tail was long, exceptionally thin, and had a black stripe running from the top of the head to the tip of the tail. She also said that it moved at a high speed in bounds of as much as 30 feet. Could it be a gigantic wolf? Or dogman? It's a dogman! In the months that followed, terror swept the region. The beasts attacked the weakened prey women and children, and unaccompanied men who took the livestock out to the pasture in the hillsides. Many were devoured and carried off. Perhaps worse, people found half-ravaged dead bodies and torn-off limbs scattered about. As its massacres continued unabated, the creature came to be thought of less and less as a wolf-like animal, and more and more 
as an invulnerable fiend. When people referred to the beast, everyone knew what they meant. The fear spread all over Javudan as the beast crisscrossed the Mangarad Mountains, leaving a trail of carnage. Panic set in. People barricaded themselves in their homes, not daring to take the livestock out to pasture or to go through the wood alone. The peasants had no firearms of any kind and felt that they could do little against the monster with the weapons they possessed. A cudgel studded with spikes, a three-pronged fork, and a bayonet. Nonetheless, they formed teams of beaters and tried to track the beast day after day. Some of the more privileged did have guns. Among them, the hunters attached to the noble houses of the region. Even guns seemed to be useless, however, for when the hunters shot at the beast, it seemed to remain unharmed. Every new story made the legend and the fear grow. On October 8, 1764, two hunters saw the beast and shot at it from only ten paces. This time the creature fell, but got up again immediately. The hunters shot once more, and once more the beast fell. But though unsteady on its legs, it moved into a nearby wood ahead of its enemies. As it ran away, the hunters shot it at least twice more. Each time it fell and rose again. Despite all this, the beast managed to escape. People were sure that it had been sorely wounded and that it would be found dead the next day. Instead, to their great horror, several more victims were killed the following days. From this episode, the legend arose that the beast of Javudan could charm firearms. The next month, a Captain Duhamel took firm control. He organized enormous beats with every available peasant, led by his dragoons, 40 on foot and 17 mounted. All efforts were useless. The beast proved too quick and too intelligent to let itself be caught in a trap. Many times, Duhamel's dragoons thought they had succeeded in killing it, but every time the beast managed to escape. A large reward was offered for the capture of the beast, and this brought hunters from all parts of France to Javudan in the hope of winning the money. Their hunt went on for months. In the end, the peasants became disgruntled. They had had enough of the dragoons who ate their bread, trampled their fields, and invaded their houses. As the beast sensed the bad feelings between the populace and the soldiers and the hunters, it launched into a massacre more terrible than before, right under the noses of the dragoons. By this time, stories of the beast of Javudan had reached other countries of Europe. This prompted King Louis XV to action, and he sent a certain Deneval to the district. Deneval was a hunter 
reputed to have killed 1,200 wolves. He began tracking the beast with six of his best bloodhounds near Malaisu in February 1765. And now the Dennis family came into the picture, a family whose fate has been painfully linked to the history of the beast. The family comprised of the mother, father, two daughters, Julianne and Janine, in their 20s, and two sons, Jacques, 16, and Sylvan, 10. They were neither poor nor rich. They owned a few cows, sheep, and goats, which the children took care of. They lived just outside the village of St. Provat de Fall at the foot of the Margeride Mountains. They had heard about the beasts massacres the previous autumn and prayed that they would be spared. But this was not to be. In March 1765 when Deneval had been in the area for a month the three older Dennis children were watching their livestock near Lezou. Jacques had lit a fire under a rock and Julien had wandered away for a moment. Suddenly Janine let out a great cry. The beast was upon her, seizing her by the head. Jacques somehow imbued with superhuman strength saved her by throwing the beast into the fire and holding it over the hot coals. But the beast, howling, got away. Janine was left with two gaping wounds, one behind each ear, and a torn shoulder. But worse, she went mad, never to recover her sanity. She remained a quivering wreck and experienced sudden, intense bouts of terror that made her scream as if the fangs of the beast had become permanently clamped around her head. Julianne never forgave herself for not being there to help. Now it is either the beast or me, she declared, and she could often be seen clambering up the slopes of Malazu, as if to provoke a fatal confrontation with her sister's attacker. Jacques Dennis, Vowing to avenge Janine, joined up with Donaval, and they became friends. The renowned wolf hunter developed a strategy with the great beats of Duhamel. He thought that beating served only to make the beast more and more wary, and advocated trying to gain its confidence by letting it come out into the open of its own accord. Then, on a given signal, he and his team would try to encircle it, trapping it with the dogs. The strategy worked no better. The beast knew the region too well and was too clever. It scrambled up the slopes, took cover in a wood sheltered in a thicket, hid in a ravine, crossed a river. All the while, it was pursued often at his heels by scores of men and dogs, soon left exhausted by this mad race over the rough terrain. The beast always evaded the hunters, leaving in its path a trail of slaughtered children, rent bodies, and strewn limbs. Then on April 29, 1765, 
two months after the arrival of Denival, a nobleman called De La Chamet spotted the beast not far from his home between Ramiz and St. Shelley. He saw the monster stalking a shepherd in a pasture and called his two brothers. The three of them took guns and went to lie in ambush below the pasture. One of the three went into the pasture and, by some ruse, got the beast to move towards the other two. They shot at it. The beast collapsed on the ground and rolled over two or three times. De La Chamette fired again. The beast rolled toward the woods, managed to gain shelter, and fled. Great splashes of blood stained the soil and bushes all around. The beast clearly had been wounded, and everyone hoped it had gone away to die alone somewhere in the wood. But again, it was a false hope. All too soon, the beast was back at its bloody work. The Great Spring Fair held in Mausoul, France in May 1765 was the scene of much celebration for the dreaded beast of Jabudan, which had terrorized the region for nearly a year, was believed to be dead. But the joy was to be short-lived. Suddenly, a horse rider galloped up and shouted, Marguerite is done for! The beast has got her! Marguerite was a friend of Jacques Dennis, who had sworn to avenge himself on the beast because of his near-fatal attack on his sister, and he rushed away to find her. At the entrance of the village, where the road turns off toward the fields, Marguerite lay bathed in her own blood. Her throat was ripped wide open. That day, the beast killed three victims, but did not even bother to eat them. This time, the rage and despair of the peasants drove them to action. They grabbed long forks and bayonets, and put the dogs onto the still fresh scent. Jacques led them. He wanted the skin of the beast, and he would not settle for less. Soon after, he found himself face to face with his enemy for the second time. He attacked it violently with his bayonet. The beast seemed unconcerned. Bearing its fangs, it leapt at Jacques. Luckily, the hunters arrived and it fled. The king was furious when he heard the news. Stories of the beast were making France look ridiculous in the eyes of neighboring countries. England especially found it a good opportunity for mocking her rival. The king charged his personal gun carrier, Antoine de Bautern, with putting an end to the interminable problem. Deneval, the king's first emissary to rid Chavudan of the beast, gave up in June 1765. In an ironic farewell to him, the beast rampaged. On June 16th, it mangled a little girl who was saved only at the last moment. 
on the 21st, it killed a boy of 14, devoured a 45-year-old woman, and carried off a little girl. Now the priests took up the line that the beast was a messenger of evil, sent to punish the people for their sins. The peasants whispered that witchcraft must be involved. Did not the Joey's castle in the parish of Vesir have a bad reputation? Was it not an ancient druid sanctuary? And what about the strange family called Chastel? The son, Jean, lived in the wild in a wood, and people feared to mention his name. For three months, Anton de Botern did little. He inspected the environs, drew up some maps, and made a survey of the routes taken by the beast. And then, on September 21st, he acted, organizing a beat with 40 local hunters and 12 dogs. He chose a starting point near the village of Palmier, not far from Bessir. The wood of Palmier contained a bayou ravine, at the bottom of which was a wide clearing. Guided by intuition, De Beauturn encircled the ravine and positioned himself and several armed men on one side of the clearing. Some beaters with hunting horns and dogs tightened up the circle. If the beast were there, it would have to pass through the clearing and come out into the open. The gunmen, their nerves stretched, became impatient. Suddenly the dogs began barking furiously. The beast was there. Debo turns intuition was right. The dogs were unleashed. The beast had about 55 yards in front of it. And now the killer animal was conscious of the men behind and in front. It began turning wildly at the edge of the wood looking for a hole in the trap. It hesitated and then came forward, trotting into the sunlight. Dave O'Turn shouldered his gun and fired. Some of the buckshot struck the animal's right shoulder. One shot went right through its right eye and its skull. The beast fell. The gunman sounded the horn in triumph. Suddenly, to everyone's stupefaction, the beast of Javudan got up and went toward Anton de Botern. One man fired at it, and the shot went through the beast's thigh. But animated by a fantastic energy, the creature turned around and set off toward the edge of the wood where it ran off into a pasture beyond. It had found a hole in the net. It was saved. And then the beast collapsed, dead at last. The creature proved to be a rare type of wolf. It was enormous, measuring six feet from nose to tail. It weighed 143 pounds and had a huge head and fangs about an inch and a half long. The scourge of Javadan was stuffed and taken to the king's court, where it was an object of curiosity for a time. It was then kept in the Museum of Natural History at Paris until the beginning of the 20th century. The beast is dead. The beast is dead. The shout went up and there was great rejoicing 
and the villages in the relief after so many deaths. But still, many people did not dare to believe it was true. Jacques Dennis, who had followed the great hunt in the Bayeux Ravine, started home, tired but with a light heart. On the way, he met his sister, Julianne, who exclaimed, Ah, oh, you believe that the beast is dead. I told you it would have to be that creature or me, and I am not done with it yet. Jean Castel knows it is still there, and it is watching us. I am going to Basir to catch it up again. And with her hair flying in the wind, Julian set off across the wood. Like someone in a raving frenzy, Jacques stood dazed for a moment, and then continued toward home. Fortunately, Julian returned home unharmed although still greatly troubled. In the next two months, until the end of November 1765, people no longer heard the sinister alarm bell sounding a fresh disaster from village to village. Yet this newfound peace was not at all it seemed. Killings went on, but an order of the king forbade anyone to speak of them. This resurrection of the beast reinforced superstition. People said that the vicious animal was not a wolf, but a fiend, a messenger. As the priests had said, the month of December was a nightmare. On Christmas Day, snow fell. People entrenched themselves in their homes with the shutters closed. There was no sound except for the lowing of cows. Jacques Dennis set off in search of Julian, who had not been seen since the day before. She was never seen again. A week after her disappearance, some unrecognizable remains were found along the narrow ravine of Planchette Stream. Shreds of flesh, bones, and some rags. All the winter, the carnage continued. Julian's father, overcame by her loss, started a search with Jacques. They went among the strange domains and menhirs that had scattered throughout the region and that are associated by tradition with pagan witchcraft and rituals, but they found no trace of Julian or the beast. The winter of 1766-1767 to was calmer, with only a few disappearances, but in the spring the massacres began again. It is not known how many were killed. Many families did not admit to the deaths, and the authorities no longer registered them. It came to light, however, that from March to June 1767, there were 14 victims of the beast, all taken in a strip of land three miles long around Pawhawk. In May and June, the peasants went on pilgrimages, hundreds of them to Notre Dame de Balou at the foot of Mount Chavet. They celebrated Mass and took Holy Communion. Jean Castel came armed. He had his gun and three cartridges blessed. On June 19, 1767, a noble of the region organized a huge beat. 300 hunters and beaters participated. Castel positioned himself on the Song de Albert, 
just as Antoine de Botern had placed himself in the Bayeux ravine. He opened a prayer book and read it, and thus he waited for his adversary. Suddenly there was a rustling of leaves, and a furtive shadow. The beast, pushed forward by the dogs, came out in front of Chastel a few steps away. Chastel finished his prayer and slowly closed the book, taking off his glasses and putting them in his pocket. The beast waited, immobile. It knew it was about to meet its destiny. Chastel raised his gun and fired, and the beast fell. And Chastel simply said, Good, you will kill no more. It is said that on that spot, where the beast died, the grass no longer grows. That's about all the big show for this week. If you got a true scary story you'd like to tell and be a guest on the show, send an email to indarkplacespod at hotmail.com. For Jimmy Haunted, this is Dave Grohl signing off. God bless you and see ya. <laughs>